Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. In this episode, we hear stories from Paymana Assad that help us to connect to Afghanistan at a deeper level. From her insights into the culture, food, geography and peoples of Afghanistan to her experience growing up as a refugee in the UK. And then we go on to cover what it was like being in Kabul when it fell to the Taliban in 2021 and what her recommendations are to UK and Western policymakers right now. Welcome, Paymana. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. And we've talked many times about Afghanistan together. Um, but I'm so keen for our podcast listeners to hear and learn a bit more and get under the skin of a country that they've heard a lot about in the news, uh, I guess, but that it's quite hard to grasp, I think, if you don't have the direct contact with people like yourselves that are able to tell us more about Afghanistan, both now, its past, and hopefully its future. So let's kick off. I'd love you just to tell people about yourself and your link with Afghanistan. Oh, well, thank you, Han and Joy, for having me on the podcast. I think it's great what you're doing um, with the with the podcast. I think it's really important. Uh, um, and thank you very much for shining a light on Afghanistan. Um, especially when it's been out of the spotlight um, over the last two years, considering the Russian invasion of Ukraine and now also the uh, Israel and Hamas uh, war in um, Gaza. So, um, my, so obviously, uh, I was born in Afghanistan, um, and um, that was a year after the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan. And so... The Afghan government that was backed by the Russians at the time um, survived for another three or four years and then fell um, because of the continued um, fighting by the Mujahideen groups against the Afghan government. Um, and with that came basically a period of chaos, a brutal civil war that broke out between different Afghan factions fighting for power, basically to fill the vacuum. Um, and from that, then the Taliban came. Uh, the first uh, Taliban regime. Um, my family basically left during the civil war um, time uh, and got political asylum in the UK. And my parents, well, my mum specifically chose Harrow as a place um, to come and live in. Um, and that's where I grew up. I went to school, um, went to university in London um, and studied politics um, and then became a councillor in 2018 from my local council uh, and was also I just worked a lot in the NGO sector on girls rights um, obviously girls rights is very um, an issue that's really close to my heart um, so mainly leading global and UK campaigns on girls rights so I think that summarizes who I am in a really short brief way and you're the first British Afghan elected representative in the UK yes yes yeah, so I think you've got real wisdom and expertise really interestingly in having very close relationship with Afghanistan and with family and friends and um 
ongoing connections with, I know, civil society there, uh, but equally being very embedded in the UK, in the political system here and in policy making here. And I think that's why I was so keen to get you on and to hear some of your perspectives, because it's it's quite unique to be in both those places yeah. and both those worlds. Um, but I'd love us to start by just taking a step back. As we've said, um, Afghanistan is often in the UK headlines or news in the in relation to conflict um but i'd love us i'd love you to just tell us more about afghanistan beyond that um so tell us about culture history different community you've said a bit about the history there but culture food different communities what you love about afghanistan i know it's a really special country um and i'd love us to understand more um well i guess that I'll start by telling a story of, um, obviously, my family left when I was three, going on four. Um, and so the real first time I got exposure to Afghanistan was through the television, obviously, at home, watching it on the news, um, specifically coverage of the Taliban regime. Uh, and I vividly remember this one image of um, a Taliban fighter holding a gun to a woman's head in Kabul Stadium. And I think that really defines what many people think of Afghanistan, right? They think of this place as um, killing, war, persecution, um, and anti-woman, basically. Um, uh, and they think of that means, they think that means that its culture means that too. Um, but I think that what you'd find is very, very different to the images that you see on your television. And so um, I was actually exposed to Afghanistan in a very different way when I was 11 years old, when my dad gave me a book by Nancy Dupree. Um, Nancy Dupree is considered the grandmother of Afghanistan. She's an American um, who was actually the wife of the American ambassador in the 1960s. She fell in love with a historian um, and left her husband and married the historian and then ended up writing loads of travel guides. And so uh, my dad gave me one of her travel guides. Um, and she basically talks about traveling throughout Afghanistan in the 1960s, eating the different types of food, uh, you know, hiking the mountains, um, camping, um, you know, t taking swim, like swimming, uh, going swimming in its lakes, all of that kind of stuff. And that kind of really, you know, I was fascinated. I was like, I need to go and be a tourist in this country. Um, this is where I'm from. This is where my parents are from. Um, and then I got the opportunity in 2007 to go for the first time. And I was a teenager. I was just finished high school, going to college. My, my uncles were getting married. And so my dad was like, well, let's go on a family holiday to Afghanistan. Go to your uncle's wedding and then just spend the rest of the summer there. Um, and so it made sense. And so when I went, once all the, you know, wedding stuff was out of the way, I said to him, well, I want to go to this place and this place and this place, because this is what Nancy Dupree wrote in her tourist guide. And he said, well, how about we don't go to this place because of security? We don't go to this place because of security, but I could do this place and this place. And we ended up going to see the Buddhas in Bamiyan. Um, and we went to Mazar Sharif. We went to one of the most religious uh, places in Afghanistan. Um, we ended up going to Paramount. We went to lots of different places. And I think the thing that struck out for me was kindness of people. And I think that's what I want people to, to think of when they think of Afghanistan, how kind people are, how hospitable people are, always offering us food or fruit or or something. Even if they were, you know, not very well off themselves, they would always just extend that hand of hospitality to us. 
Um, and and the and I think that's embedded in the culture. So this culture of welcoming um, guests and being kind to other people, and this community of helping one another, being there for one another. Um, I think that is the key thing that I would tell people and what I experienced as a teenager for the first time, which actually made me fall in love with the country in a way that I, I hadn't before. Uh, it just gave me a totally different exposure. But also the fruit in Afghanistan is amazing uh, and it tastes amazing. And it's the kind of fruit I've never tasted anywhere else in the world. And I don't know if that's because it's so purely organic. Um, and it doesn't have all of these other chemicals mixed in with it, or it's just the atmosphere and the weather, or the fact that they grow it with so much love and so much care. Um, the fruit is amazing. There's all different types of foods. Um, and you have nomads in Afghanistan too. And they're usually women nomads um, who take out their camels and they basically just, um, you know, live, eat, where they decide to, to stop and rest and then move on with, with their animals to a, a different village or a different place. Um, and they're called the Kochis and they wear the traditional Afghan clothes. So it was funny because I had seen those clothes always at weddings in London because you just wear them for, you know, it's just a nice thing to wear at weddings. But these women were wearing it, in you know, whilst they're doing like work with their with their sheep or their, you know, their animals and like, their children and it was just fascinating to me so I think that's those are the things that you know I I've experienced of Afghanistan I know of Afghanistan from my first time visiting and I think that's what I would want people to sort of take away and that you know we have um, exposure of different cultures because we're in the Afghanistan is in the heart of Asia there's a mix of Central Asia and South Asia so the mix of different types of cuisines. You've got the dumplings, you've got the rice and the curries, but then you also have um, sort of the, the vegetarian options and just a mixture of, of, of food and culture and dress. And um, and on that same lines, I remember you explaining to me really clearly about how different ethnic communities are intermarried and live alongside each other very closely and there's a real mix of different languages different communities yeah Afghanistan has more than um sort of 20 languages uh, that are spoken um across the country but I guess the two main official languages are Pashto and Dari uh, Dari being a dialect of Persian uh, Farsi um and so um you can have a conversation with someone where you're speaking Pashto and they're speaking Dari, but they understand what you're saying and you understand what they're saying, but you don't speak the other person's language. Um, it's that type of country. Um, and yeah, the, the different ethnic groups obviously marry with intermarry. Um, but like any other country, it has its class problems. It has its, um, you know, racism problems um, and all the rest of it. But I think largely um, communities intermarry you have um, the different ethnic groups so I think the four main ethnic groups are the Pashtuns, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks and the Hazaras and then obviously you have the Baloch, uh, the you have the Amaks, you have all these, uh, the Pashais, you have different groups, um, you also have different religions, the Sikh, the Hindus, the Jews um, and obviously the large majority are Muslims um, but within that you have Sunnis and, and Shias. Um, so it's a large mix depending on sort of the 
influence of invading armies and influence of just uh, different cultures and groups who've who've come there. Um, and yeah, and I think for the the minority aspect, the religious minority aspect is really really important and really key because they have now been uh, sort of pushed out of Afghanistan completely. So Afghanistan no longer has any Sikhs or Hindus or Jews living inside the country anymore because of the the subsequent wars, but also specifically because of the Taliban regime. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's that's an amazing picture, actually. It's really rich, and I hope it gives people a little um, taste. I myself had, uh, when I did my master's, had uh, was studying alongside... Um, an Afghan colleague and he has his family there and I just remember the incredible hospitality <laughs> going around and pistachio nuts and green yeah. raisins and tea yeah, and yeah. yogurt and just just abundance of um yeah hospitality and kindness and welcome and I love that and um, just just briefly you've obviously mentioned about coming as 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 a refugee to the UK and I just wondered if you a few thoughts about what was that like what what has that been like with that as part of your history because there's a lot of talk <laughs> about asylum seekers and refugees and without personal stories and personal faces mm. to that yeah I think that whenever I get asked this question I always um it always um sort of takes me back because it's like I never really thought of myself as anything but just a normal kid growing up in the UK. I didn't think it was of course different. I didn't think I was strange. I didn't think I didn't belong here or any of that kind of stuff. But it's it's normal to have, you know, a different culture, a different language at home, and then you speak English at school, and then you know all of this. And you there's people from all different places in your in your classroom. You know, you got Indians, and you got black people, and you've got you've got a mixture of people who've come from different places in the world uh in that class um I think the experience when I look back, back at it now obviously um I I I had a great childhood um I think my my parents um tried to make it as normal for us as possible and tried to provide everything that they could but that obviously went with a lot of difficulties you know um I grew up on a council estate uh, with my parents on and off benefits and the first um, house that we lived in was a council house where me and my siblings shared a room. Um, so it was me and three three of my other siblings, and we were all in one room. The, the house was a two bedroom, um, and so it's cramped accommodation. You know, things always um, going wrong in the house, and you're always on the phone to housing association, and having to translate for your mum, or you know, all of that kind of stuff. So growing up is the normal, I think, typical refugee uh, immigrant sort of story that I think you hear all the time from different figures out there in the public. I think the thing that was unique about, about my experience is that um, we, we were so heavily linked back to Afghanistan and what was happening in Afghanistan. And that was constantly a theme at home, um, you know, watching the television. And I remember my parents, because at that time they had the VCR and you had the tape. Um, and every time Afghanistan was mentioned, they'd rush into the room, put the tapes in and, re- and pick record. So we literally have, at least now, we have all these like old tapes of like random clips on the television of Channel 4 and BBC 
talking about Afghanistan. And I always wonder why. And it's because anything that reminds you of home, they wanted to keep and to hold on to. And so um, they're always recording those clips or, you know, they was making sure that we um, understood our culture, like always wearing our cultural dresses, um, Eid and for other sort of holidays and um, just making sure that we we interacted with other Afghans in order to sort of keep our language skills up. And, um, you know, because there were no Afghan Saturday schools at the time, um, what my mom did is she really wanted to make sure that we learnt how to speak Farsi and read and write Farsi. And Farsi and Dari are basically interchangeable. Uh, many people, there's lots of political debates around what you call the language. But either way, um, my mom wanted us to make make sure that we spoke her, her, her language, her mother tongue. And so um, she enrolled all of us into Iranian Saturday school. So um, I had a very strange and interesting upbringing. I was going to a mosque where I was being taught about being a good Muslim from a Pakistani teacher. I was going to Saturday school, being taught how to read and write Farsi from an Iranian teacher. And obviously, um, my mum was taking us to all of these extra uh, activities outside. So I signed up to tennis lessons and my sisters were going to gymnastics and my brother was in football and uh, I, I had violin lessons at school. So I think my parents really tried to make sure that we had as a normal upbringing as possible and had all the opportunities that other kids had. Um, at the same time, we were going to Saturday school on a Saturday from 11 to 3, spending our whole Saturday trying to read and learn, you know, our mother tongue. And then after school on the weekdays, going to mosque to learn about our religion. So in a way, it was interesting and different, and in, in some ways, it was it was normal uh, in in that way. Um, uh, and it comes a lot with you know the other things like when we first moved on to our council estate, we were the only one of two Asian families on the estate. Everyone else was white, uh, and and during that time, it was you know the early two thousands, and our house used to get egged and and um, flower bombed and all that kind of stuff. And I never really thought of it as anything because I thought it's just kids being kids, you know, just, they're just being naughty. Um, but when I think about it now, and I remember, you know, coming home from school once and, not, and that had happened to our house and my mum just crying in the living room saying, why do they hate us? Like, why can't we just be peaceful anywhere? That peace anywhere. And I was just like trying to calm her down, like, oh, it's okay, don't worry. They're just kids. They're just being annoying they're just being naughty when I think about it now I think you know those kinds of anti-refugee sentiments or anti-immigrant or kind of sentiments were there but we just never really spoke about it as much um and I think over the years obviously that's changed a lot um and it's becoming the easier um to to, to be here because we speak about the stories so much and yet still there's so much anti-refugee and anti-immigrant rhetoric in the media and in the press and from our politicians and I think the key thing that people don't understand on this is that nobody would leave their home willingly if they didn't have to uh, and they wouldn't choose um, to come to the UK or to another Western country and then stay here forever if their country 
I didn't go back to sort of a peaceful situation. My parents, for example, wanted to go back to Afghanistan and, and definitely thought that that was an hope and a dream. But after more than five years of continued Taliban being in power, they realized that it's going to continue to be like, that way. And therefore, they decided that they were going to permanently stay here. And with that comes a lot, you know, you you risk losing your culture, your identity. Um, so much of who you are is lost. Um, and that's why I think there's always this struggle within families. How do you live this life um, where at home you're surrounded by completely different values and not completely different. There are obviously similarities, but different types of customs and cultural um, things that you grow up with versus outside. It's a completely different culture, different language, different type of mindset. How do you make peace with that? Um, I think that's been sort of an ongoing journey, not just for myself, but for so many others like like me. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's a real whiz through your childhood as well. And I'm loving all the stories you're telling. <laughs> Because it makes it so real um, for anyone trying to connect in. And I I know you've got another big story, which is, of course, coming to the present day, um, when almost coincidentally you were actually in Afghanistan when the Taliban took Kabul, weren't you, in 2021. And I wondered if you could tell us about that, because that was, that you would have already had significant things to say about that moment, right? But the fact you were there made it even more, um, mm. I guess, shocking and impactful and gave you a deep understanding of, of of what had happened. Yeah, and I think just for the podcast listeners to put this in sort of context as to how I came to be in Afghanistan in 2021, that summer... I just need to go back to that high school trip, uh, you know, in that summer holiday uh, with my family um, in 2007. That really um, made me fall in love with the country to the point where I wrote both of my dissertations, both my master's and undergrad on Afghanistan, um, re read and wrote and did lots of activists and advocacy work on Afghanistan. And basically, incidentally, after that, I visited every single year um after 2007 um and did lots of humanitarian work and found myself in a situation where I were this is after COVID this is what well restrictions were still around during this time so this is like January February 2021 um and the vaccine had just come out and you know people were getting vaccinated and and I thought to myself watching the political situation in Afghanistan where President Biden had agreed to continue the, the Doha deal between the Taliban and the United States, which Trump had initially signed in Doha in 2020, February 2020. Um, I had the realisation that something bad was going to happen, but I just didn't know when it was going to happen. And he announced a troop withdrawal <clears throat> deadline in April. Um, and he said that, all US troops would be out by September 11th, 2021. And I just said to myself, I need to get on a flight to Afghanistan, not only to see my family who live there still, but to reconnect with people 
um, and just get a sense of what's going on and and maybe this is my last chance to to be in the country and to see the country. Um, and obviously at the time you had to, if you wanted to travel, you had to have a second, you had to be fully vaccinated and to get into certain countries. And the only way you can go to Afghanistan is through Dubai. And so I was like, well, I need to get fully vaccinated and then get on a flight to, to, to Afghanistan. And so I did that. Um, and I arrived in the country mid July. Um, and it was basically normal. So it was like any other time that I'd been there. But this time, obviously, every year I saw the developments in Afghanistan, not only from the infrastructure, but also businesses, um, fashion on the streets of Kabul with, you know, like in any other developing country in the world, like girls were highly into fashion, wearing high heel shoes, like shoes and like the jeans and the nice tops and using that with their scars and the color coding and all of that kind of stuff the same thing with the guys and people running like side businesses and then also studying and people visiting or going abroad and then coming home and all so I think the the transformation I saw in Afghanistan over the last 20 years was just fascinating at how quickly it developed not only its infrastructure but the millions of girls that went to school the millions more that graduated from university became doctors versus journalists on television reporting um musicians singing playing instruments just a completely different country to the one that you would find on your television screen in the early 90s uh, and so yeah it was normal and I had a friend who visited with me who was American she it was her first time and I basically rang her and I said you've been telling me you want to go to Afghanistan for so long this might be your only and final chance so if you want to come come now and so she got on a flight from the US and came to Afghanistan and she stayed with me that week and we did um, the most touristy activities that you could possibly think of. We went to all the museums, we went to all the like the, the tourist attraction sites, um, the most Instagrammable spots in Kabul that you could think of. Um, we went to the best restaurants, the best steakhouses, the best pizza places. Uh, Kabul was like, Kabul was still like um, experimenting with fast food. Um, and so they might not have Western McDonald's or like KFC, but they have alternatives to that. So, you know, we were like going to all these places, having these nice dinners, it's going out all the time. And um, ice cream is a big thing in Afghanistan. It's called Shudiyaf. And so, um, yeah, and during hot weather, that's what you have uh, after a whole day. So that's what we would do. Um, and then things slowly, slowly started to change. The atmosphere started to change. Um, and obviously, when once you're when you're inside it all, it kind of feels different to when you're watching it from the outside. So obviously, I was getting like phone calls and text messages from friends and family who were abroad and outside of Afghanistan, saying to me, "Shouldn't you be leaving Afghanistan? Um, situation's really bad. Loads of provinces are falling." And I just thought to myself, "But the U.S. are still in Afghanistan. The troop withdrawal hasn't happened, so." I don't think anything bad is going to happen going forward. Um, and the thing is, I hadn't booked a return at home because of the COVID rules. My plan was to go to Uzbekistan for 10 days and then come home from, from that route. Unfortunately, what I found was that as the provinces started falling all around, Kabul sort of became this bubble of 
people who were in shock and people who were in disbelief. So every official, every activist, everyone who was still there that I spoke to had the 100% belief that there would be a political settlement that would come from this situation, that the United States would step in, force the Taliban to come into some political settlement with the Islamic Republic, and there would be an interim government, and there would be peace. And that was the hope of many people in the country. Um, And unfortunately, that didn't happen. I was in uh, Afghanistan on... So on this Saturday, I was in Kabul. It was sort of like slow motion. People, there were loads of people in the banks trying to get their money out. So it's like chaos at the banks. But everywhere else was sort of like, everyone was like going in slow motion. It was just as if they were trying to hold on to the bits of, of Afghanistan that they knew was, was coming to an end. Um, girls walking in the streets, laughing with their friends or going for sort of the last lunch or the last sort of dinner, the last time they'll be out together, people buying flowers and just, you know, just random different things happening that I felt that were like it was happening for the last time in in some sense. Um, uh, And I happened to have a friend over that, that evening and we went out for food. And then as is tradition for the ice cream, I said to her, well, why don't we have ice cream and I'll drop you home and then I'll go home after that. And she said, yeah, that sounds good. So we went to the usual ice cream spot and it was empty. And I had a driver with me and I said to the driver, why is this place empty? And he said, because the Taliban are coming. And I said, okay, so nobody's out on the street. He said, no, everybody's tense, like a tense moment. Everybody's waiting. Okay, um, we got ice cream. I, I said to her, "Let's just have it in the car on the way to your to your house." So having it in the car on the way to her house, and I see these groups of like different men just hanging around street corners, but in specific spots, like outside a university, outside a bank, outside a checkpoint outside sort of like a military the military um training headquarters random places across the center of Kabul and I was like to her they don't look like they're from Kabul they look like they're not from here and they were wearing the traditional clothes but the traditional clothes look different and she said yeah they don't look like they're from here and I said they look like Taliban to me and she said they probably are Anyways, I dropped her home, and on the way back, I said to my driver, get home as fast as you can. Home, my family were there, and I basically described the situation, and I said that this is how it, these are the kind of people that were standing, and they were like, but where, in what locations? When I described the locations, they said, yep, the Taliban are in Kabul. We need to get you out of here immediately, because if they come into Kabul, what they're going to do is they're going to search every single house on the outskirts, anybody connected to the government in any way uh, will probably be taken. They probably already even have a list. So I said, where where shall I go? Where do you want me to go? And they said, near the American embassy, near the airport. That's probably the safest place you could be because they'll probably have lots of security and the Americans are still there. But okay, so went to um, a, a flat in one of the, the 
sort of um, very close to the American embassy. And all night, all I could hear was Chinooks basically evacuating people from the American embassy to the airport, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then the next day on the Sunday, it was just a chaotic experience trying to get to the Baron Hotel. And I don't really want to, I don't think we have the time to go through it now. But, but it was a... It was a very traumatic experience, and I think that for your mm. viewers who who want to know what that was like in its full sense, the Afghan experience, sort of the British civilian experience, if you will, and the the British military experience, I think the best thing is to watch the Channel Four documentary Evacuation, which I took part in, mm. and explains that whole story of what happened on that Sunday. Um, but I was on the first civilian. Um, evacuation flight that the RAF did from Afghanistan, from Kabul to the UK. Um, and that is what the documentary talks about um, and the decisions and the chaos that that basically unfolded that day and the devastation, um, the abandonment of the Afghan people um, that happened on the following days subsequently to that. Um, you know, that experience um, changed me as a person changed my outlook on life uh it changed who I you know thought I was going to be in the future but I think I'm going to be a totally different person based on on that experience alone because when you watch a government crumble with your own eyes a democratic government people voted for that people pinned their hopes on that allowed women to to work that gave girls the opportunity to go to school that gave people freedom to listen to music, to to enjoy life and to celebrate life. To watch that crumble before your eyes and the, the desperation and the betrayal that, that, that Afghans experienced that day and witnessing that, I think that that's an experience that will never leave me. And I think that anybody else involved or who saw, I don't think that that experience will leave you either. Um and I think that that is just uh, it, it sort of said to me that why it's really important that we have good leaders in the West who understand that the decisions they make at home impact lives in a way that they have no idea in countries like Afghanistan, um, specifically Afghanistan, um, because of a direct intervention of 20 years, so much money, so much blood, not just Afghan, but British and American uh, blood has been spilled trying to uphold something that we all believe in but to then finally give up on that um, and walk away I think is a betrayal of who we are as Brits but also who we believe we we should be um, in regards to our values um, as Europeans and as internationalists um, so I think that that's sort of how it's that experience changed me um, and sort of my political outlook on how things need to be here at home in the UK. Mm, and you've continued to be in very close contact, haven't you, with particularly with women's groups in Afghanistan. And since then, I know you've been in a lot of conversation with UK policymakers about Afghanistan and really trying to keep it on the radar as you say as other you know as as the kind of west looks in lots of different directions as it perhaps grapples with what to do now and so i wondered if you could tell us 
a bit about what you're currently recommending or the things, your top messages that you're currently telling people about and that you really want people to grasp at this point? Because, I mean, I really appreciate you being so authentic and honest, but also in the really colourful descriptions that, that help people get that little insight, you know, into what it was like at that time, um, but also what it means, the significance of what that meant when Kabul fell to the Taliban and what what it's been like since so so what are the what are the things that you want people to know and what are the recommendations you're currently making and I I know they change as you know as things as the external world changes so I think um this is a really important question because obviously there has been so much that has happened over the last two years so since the Taliban takeover just for your listeners to to be clear on what's going on inside Afghanistan Women are not allowed to go to work if they do not work in the health sector. Uh, and only in specific Western-run uh, NGOs or Western-run uh, hospitals or initiatives. Women are not allowed to study. Girls are not allowed to go to university. And above grade six, I think it's a blanket ban on education. Um, but in order to be very specific, above the grade six in Afghanistan, you, your daughter cannot go to school. Just say what age that is. That is around 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Live music is banned uh, in Afghanistan. Musicians are exiled. They are hunting and killing. The Taliban are hunting and killing anybody connected to the former government. If they are a woman in high public office, uh, former judges specifically who put Taliban prisoners away, um, journalists, uh, anybody connected to the former government in any role who called out the Taliban or said anything against the, the Taliban. And specifically and most importantly, the Afghan National Defence and Security Forces who fought over the last 20 years and gave more than 70,000 lives in the fight for democracy and human rights. They are being hunted and killed by the Taliban. Even as we speak today, many people are in safe houses or are in hiding or on the run. Uh, and many more people are exiled. There is a current brain drain, drain happening in Afghanistan. Anybody who is young and educated wants to leave. Uh, the economy is in free fall. Inflation is very, very high. Um, um, food is scarce. There is a uh, sort of hunger crisis now happening because of winter. Uh, and the humanitarian situation is, is really bad. So that's to just set the context of, of what we're currently dealing with in the last two years. Since Since then... Most European and uh, uh, Western countries have put sanctions on Afghanistan because of the Taliban takeover, which has meant that they cannot do trade um, with uh, most countries or do the same sort of transactions and activities that they used to. And yet the United States continues to send the Taliban $40 million a week into the Afghanistan National Bank in order to uphold um, and keep afloat the economy under humanitarian grounds. Amongst all of that, uh, women are still protesting on the streets of Kabul for their rights. They are being imprisoned, um, tortured, and then sometimes released, and therefore we never hear from them again, or they're silenced, or they end up leaving the country. Amongst all of this, what, what many Afghan groups, I mean, I just got off a call from, with uh, Afghan civil society to jump on this podcast, um, and what many of those groups are asking for is, one, please don't forget Afghanistan. Um, in the discussions around the humanitarian crisis happening across the world. Um, but that Afghanistan is not peaceful. This idea that now the Taliban has take, taken over, that it's peaceful, it's not. 
Um, you cannot have peace without justice or without security. And if you are not secure in your own home, then you do not have peace. Um, and that relates to um, the entire population of Afghanistan. And if certain sections of the, of the population are not safe, um, then that means that it's not secure uh, and peaceful. And so I think that we need to understand that Afghanistan is still a war zone and therefore it's still in a conflict and we still need to speak about it in sort of the conflict um, area uh, of countries. Uh, we used to still band it into that um, that area. The other the other point is that it's a gender apartheid regime, and gender apartheid needs to be recognised in Afghanistan because it's a systematic policy that the Taliban are following, using state apparatus to specifically sideline half of the population of Afghanistan from their basic human rights. And gender apartheid needs to be recognised uh, by the United Nations and criminalised in a way, the same way that racial apartheid was criminalised by the UN in South Africa. The same thing needs to happen for Afghanistan in order to be able to hold the Taliban to account. Unfortunately, that currently isn't happening because there are debates around culture. Um, the Taliban using religion and culture as excuses um, as to why they're doing what they're doing around women's rights and girls' rights. but. That is uh, completely in, uh, inaccurate. Um, it is not Afghan culture to deny girls an education or to deny women the right to work. Afghan women would have had the right to vote um, for British women if uh, that constitution had been enacted in Afghanistan, um, if the king hadn't been overthrown, uh, uh, King Amon Khan. Uh, Afghan women have fought for their rights over history. Um, they have played an important role in the progress of their country and therefore it does not align with the culture. Um, and Islam's first right is to to, to women and in the religious book. Um, and the first thing that the Quran said to, well, that the God said to Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, is to read. Uh, and therefore many the majority of Muslims believe that it is the right of every human being, regardless if they're a woman or a man, to to have the right to an education. Um, and so those two reasons do not stand. And I think we need to be able to fight back and argue passionately about what our values are and defend those values uh, uh, to the Taliban rather than accepting their excuses of culture and religion. So um, those are the, sort of the three um, big things. One, making sure that we um, don't recognize the Taliban as the official legitimate government of Afghanistan. Two, that it's not a peaceful country and we still need to look at it in the context of, of war. And three, that it needs, we need to recognize a gender apartheid in, in the country. And I think the last thing that, that I sort of always say in this is that whoever thinks that the Taliban aren't international jihadis has got it completely wrong. Because when you look at what the Taliban are doing right now, they're sending most boys to madrasas, which is a religious school. The religious school is a very extreme version of Islam that is being taught, with sections of the Quran that are completely removed. The more peaceful, the more coexistence uh, verses of the Quran are removed from that. And therefore, you have a generation that is being radicalized by the Taliban to become effectively a Taliban-supporting 
sort of mentality mindset nation. And what is undoing is 20 years or more than that of hard work led by Afghan women's rights groups who've been fighting for gender equality in the country for so many decades. That is all being undone because the Taliban are radicalizing an entire generation of young people, not only to become suicide bombers, but to basically be the Taliban supporters. And they're using the state as a tool to do that. And they're using US and European taxpayer money to to normalize that under the grounds of a humanitarian crisis. And I think that is going to bode, that is is really worrying for me for the future, because not only is that detrimental to the future of Afghanistan and to the women and girls and also the men and boys of that country, but also to our security and the progress of not only the region, but the world, because you have effectively given the Taliban the power to be an example to other extremist groups around the world who will look at the Taliban and say, well, they can do it. They can cut a deal with the, with the West, not only get paid continuously under humanitarian grounds, but also impose their own restrictions and their own rules, their own ideology, and also help generate a new generation of young people that will in the future continue to take up this ideology and, and promote it. And push it out. Um, And I think that's incredibly worrying because if you look at some of the groups um, across the world, extremist groups specifically, they quote the Taliban, sort of their idols. And and if you look at, for example, Hamas congratulating the Taliban the day after they took over Kabul, and you look at other extremist groups like Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, you know, um, the TTP, just all these other extremist groups who are trying to achieve the same aims and same goals, they all see the Taliban as sort of their ultimate role model if you will and I think that that is the most scary thing and that is the thing that we should be thinking about because whatever actions we're not taking or we are taking is clearly having a detrimental impact in Afghanistan that will have repercussions for our future. Mm. And so just spell that out just a little bit more there's things that you think the West is doing currently in relation to the Taliban that it shouldn't be or that encourages or legitimizes. But there are also, there are some things that can be done in terms of, I know some things with civil society, for example, that perhaps people don't realise that is also where there is opportunity and there's relationship and there are ways to continue to relate as opposed to step back and just say it's all too difficult. Yeah, I'd love to hear those those kind of two sides. So I think that... Um... You know, if you're a normal sort of person in the UK and you want to make sure that something happens that's supportive of of Afghans in Afghanistan, obviously the first thing is you could donate to um, Afghan-run NGOs. Um, And the one that I always ask people to donate to is uh, ASEEL, A-S-E-E-L. It's a really good uh, sort of on-the-ground operation um, uh, led by Afghans for Afghans and the aid goes direct and they report back so I think that's really good and the second thing obviously is to write to your MP I know that sounds so cliche but write to your MP and keep it on the agenda and say well I read this in the paper today or I saw this on the news today what are you doing to keep this on the agenda in parliament what are you doing to raise this with ministers in parliament um 
Um, that's the second thing. So write to your MP to keep it uh, on the agenda. And third, there are always um, local groups uh, working on the integration of Afghan refugees in the UK um, that you can go out and volunteer with and help with. And so I think look on your local council website or get in touch with your local councillor who can put you in touch with the local group that can that can do that. But I think in the wider context, in terms of what the UK government and what we should be doing sort of as policymakers or what we should be advocating for is one, making sure that Afghan women have a seat at the table on any type of discussion on Afghanistan's future, um, making sure that there is a proper consultative mechanism to do that. Um, because at the moment, the UK doesn't have a proper consultative mechanism to do that. So allowing the engagement of civil society through a formal sense um, to happen on what our future policy uh, or current thinking should be on Afghanistan. I think that's really missing. And that's something that Afghan women's groups, but also civil society groups have been asking for for the last two years, and it hasn't been happening. The second is using international institutions like the United Nations, like the European Union, um, like NATO and other big uh, multilateral organisations to highlight what is happening inside Afghanistan and how that relates to not only our security in in Europe and the West, but also uh, how that relates to the humanitarian crisis currently happening and what we can do to change that. So, for example, like I said, at the UN, recognising gender apartheid as a criminal uh, offence against international law would allow people to prosecute um, the Taliban at The Hague on violating international human rights laws, which we know that they're already doing to legalise it in, in some sense um, and recognise it would help not only Afghan women, but women in so many other countries across the world that are going through the same thing. So I think those are sort of the, the things that we do on a local perspective, but also on sort of like a global national um, uh, level, um, which I think is, is really important. But I think the platforming and giving a voice to Afghans is, is really key and important and not discussing the future of their country without them is really key for politicians and policymakers. Yeah, I love that. And thank you so much because that's a real, I mean, there's a real breadth there, isn't there, for the people that really want policy asks <laughs> and are perhaps already at the tables where things are talked about, but also the interested observer and that's something that I think I've been struck by as we've talked, but also as I've sat in some um, forums listening to particularly to Afghan women, the the plea to keep engaged, keep listening, keep with Afghan citizens <laughs> and particularly Afghan girls and women. And I think that it's an incredibly powerful message. And I think that's something I really want to pull out in this po podcast as we look at different areas you know as you can imagine it was a similar thing with the Sahel when I covered that is there are certain parts of the world where from an international perspective particularly perhaps based in the UK things can seem difficult tricky or like things aren't moving but that's the very moment when you shouldn't look away, exactly. shouldn't look to, shouldn't leave them behind, shouldn't leap from one one thing to the next. Although that's very important, of course, to follow where geopolitics is moving. But it's actually particularly those areas and simply committing 
in a very significant and deliberate way to keep engaging and keep the relationships open and keep supporting and keep listening to voices is is just incredibly important finally then to finish off this isn't the end of course and there's uh there will be a bright future for afghanistan one day and i wondered even though that's hard to imagine in sort of 2023 what what are your dreams for afghanistan in the future what what do you dream for for afghanistan i dream that one day I will go back to Afghanistan with my family and I will see the tricolor Afghan flag raised again uh, and I will see girls going to school and women going back to work and all the freedoms that were taken away from them reinstalled but also I dream that the, the, the the Afghans who have been exiled and pushed out of their country return to help rebuild their country and that Afghanistan will see peace. And uh, the reason why I have that dream is because I have the hope and the knowledge and from what I see happening every single day over the last two years, but even before that, that there are people continuing to stand up and fight for their rights. The women coming out onto the streets in Kabul and protesting, the men walking out of their university exams, protesting the ban on girls not going to university anymore the men you know putting up the tricolor afghan flag against the taliban wishes and people raising their voices at the united nations the eu even on the streets of london here the protests the protests happening in support of afghan women and girls but what gives me even greater hope is that they have allies they have people who support them and who believe in their cause and that is people like you, Anna Joy, um, from hosting this podcast and raising the voice of Afghanistan, but also to other people who have volunteered their time, given their money, and raised the issue with their representatives um, and spent days and nights trying to evacuate people from Afghanistan and keep them safe and supported them, welcomed them into their homes. And that goes from the veteran community to civil society to journalists to business people. It's across the spectrum. And so I have hope that all of that will come together one day to see a peaceful and progressive and democratic Afghanistan. Incredible. That's an amazing way to end. How can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Pame Asad. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Pame on Asad. See what I post, uh, get in touch. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Paymina. Thank you for listening to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, where Britain meets the world. Subscribe today, share it with a friend or colleague, and be part of shaping Britain's role on the global stage.